0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is the second Sunday in Lent. Lent is a penitential season during which we focus our attention on what it means to be sorry for our sins. By intensifying our discipline and focus on the sorrow we ought to have, we also intensify and focus our trust in Jesus for whose sake God forgives us all our sins. Today's gospel lesson is one of the most precious in the Bible for those who suffer. Reminisce. remember, remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. The Canaanite woman cries out for mercy. She appeals to mercies that are old, she is not of the household of Israel, but she prays for the walls of Jerusalem to be built. For therein and therein only does she find safety. She's a Canaanite. The gods of her fathers have no mercy. Her old childhood God is just another one of the many and various gods of worry and mammon, greedy for sacrifice, never providing anything, promising pleasure and honor and leaving their devotees bitter and sad. These have been her gods. But her daughter, her child, needs a better God. She cries out to the God who desires mercy and not sacrifice. She calls him Lord, the son of David. Old hostilities can rot. Her daughter needs help. She needs old mercies. In the glory days of David, Canaanites like her were kept in their place. But the more the kingdom declined over the years, the more old pagans like her could prosper and assert their presence. Not much good that does for her now. Now she does not appeal to equality. She does not appeal to her dignity or to any human rights. She simply cries for mercy. She asserts her presence by humbling herself and begging for the glory days of David's son. David's God is the God of mercy. She needs what she cannot earn. She needs what has been promised to somebody else's children. She does not get offended that Jesus seems to ignore her. She does not even defend herself when compared to a dog. She's not looking to be dignified or acknowledged or recognized or seen as our postmodernist identitarians today insist is so indispensable for social justice and personal sense of value. What good does this do her? Her daughter's demon possessed. She wants her daughter back. She wants help. And Jesus can help. But what does this dear woman's sorrow and desperation have to do with repentance? Surely, crying out for mercy is a big part of repentance, but this woman is not exactly confessing her sin. She is not acknowledging her guilt and begging to be forgiven but then neither are you every time. Your helpless need brings you to your knees and you are moved to mumble or weep to God for the help you need. These are prayers that could be uttered if you had time or wherewithal to list petitions, but they are often more likely expressed with groans too deep and too painful to put to words. You just want the pain and danger and uncertainty to be passed. You don't know what you want exactly. You just know that what you have is bad and you want it to end and you know God can make it end. Is this the prayer of repentance? It must be. Or to what does your heart appeal? Do you insist that you have merited God's deliverance? Do you accuse God of injustice when you beg for help? Do you appeal to the fact that other people seem to have fewer or less frequent troubles and that God should even things out? Of course you don't. You're a Christian. Or can the Holy Spirit give utterance to your silent woes without teaching your heart to claim no merit or worthiness but Christ? Often more implied than it should be, but God grant your heart to know it for sure and to put it to words. Such desperate cries for help are clear and knowing appeals to the Son of David, your Savior, who, desiring mercy more than sacrifice, gave himself for your sins. For your sins. What are these? In moments of desperate need, perhaps all your sins are not on your mind, either too painful to list or too jumbled to organize. All your sins are all distilled into nothing more than a deep sense of unworthiness that forbids and prevents you from appealing to anything before God other than His proven and promised willingness to help and assist poor sinners for Jesus' sake. Oh, God, have mercy. We've all been there. I wouldn't wish you to be there. I wouldn't know how to bring any good from such angst. But God does. If God wishes it, if he wills it to dear brothers and sisters, he means it for your good. If nothing else, yet always to sharpen your heart's focus and affection on him who has come to save you. And so he leads us in many mundane ways, through many seemingly arbitrary troubles and frustrations, through many betrayals, cruelties, injustices, and hardships, all to routinely and anon invite our hearts to make this appeal of faith, the appeal that claims no merit or worthiness on our part, the appeal that claims the mercy of God found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, who shows loving kindness in every time of need. His merit and worthiness always avail, even if his response to your begging doesn't seem always soon enough. But his mercy is always enough. He makes senseless burdens into blessed crosses. And in this way, he does it. He teaches us to swallow our pride, repent of our pride, and let the Lord God mock our pride and our native idolatry. And he teaches us to rest confident in one and only one appeal that the mercy of God is tender. His heart is moved to pity. He came to crush the devil's head. He cannot possibly be distracted from this task by any heart oppressed by the devil's cruelty. The woman in our lesson this morning was oppressed by the devil's cruelty. Last Sunday, we considered how Jesus did battle against the devil to overcome his wicked malice. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. He used God's word to resist the devil's wiles. He did so as our substitute. He did so as our example. This Sunday we see what the Christian battle looks like. It is a battle not against flesh and blood, of course, nor even just against spiritual forces of darkness. This is bad enough, but the Christian's battle at its fiercest is the battle of facing God when God appears to be our enemy. God himself appears to be our enemy when we are distressed and desperate, when we see no reason for why we should be so afflicted. He himself seems to be the cause of our woes when it appears that our cries to him who is all-powerful fall on deaf ears, unwilling to listen. But he is training us He is teaching us to live in repentance. When God's almighty power and God's all-availing mercy seem to conflict with each other, we must repent. Repent? Yes, repent. We do not persuade God to help us by making a reasonable case against his inattentiveness. We do not move God's heart by proving the inconsistency that he who is able, to help must therefore be required to help. We do not synthesize and reconcile God's power and mercy. No, we find his power in his mercy. We acknowledge our sin and expect to find his power to help us in his willingness to help us and not the other way around. We find his power in his willingness, not his willingness in his power. If we seek his willingness in his power, then we find a God who seems not to be powerful enough, but who is unpredictable in his desire to help. But if we seek his power in his willingness, then we find him who proves his power, though he often hides this power, who proves his power to save in his own weakness in his own suffering, in fasting and temptation, and in his own God-forsaken sorrow on the cross of Calvary. There we see power because there we see divine willingness perfected and clarified. His willingness to help us in all affliction is found only here, In his willingness to bear in himself the source of all our pain and sorrow. He bears our sin. This is what it means to live in repentance. Living in repentance doesn't necessarily mean that we must figure out what particular sin has brought on and caused whatever pressing trouble we now face. Although we would have to be pretty daft not to trace our troubles, at the very least, to some sin we've committed. As we pray in Psalm 25, Forgive the sins of my youth. What fool doesn't at least have a theory? We have committed sins, and we know them. And what we can't put our finger on, we still acknowledge. As David himself confesses in Psalm 19, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. When we have committed obvious sins, we repent. We acknowledge our wrongdoing of thought, word, and deed to God who told us not to do the wrong. Acknowledging our sin means that we intend not to do them anymore. We want help. We recognize the evil and the harm our sin causes both ourselves and others. We recognize what offense our sin gives to God, and we confess to God. We plead his mercy. He keeps us back from presumptuous sins when we ask him to. He does not let them have dominion over us when we ask him to have dominion over us instead. To have dominion means to be Lord. God told Cain that his sin sought to rule over him, but that he must rule over them. How oh. How can we rule over our sins, especially over those sins that we can't even put our finger on? How can we put them in their place unless the Lord who comes to save takes them upon himself and suffers their penalty in our place? And that is how. God was not telling Cain to dig deep within to find strength enough to overcome his anger He was telling Cain to remember that he, like his father, was dust. He had no power to overcome temptation except by relying on him who promised he would come as our Savior to overcome sin in our place and to be our Lord. He is our Lord by forgiving us. He rules us in mercy. So we confess our sins, but we are never, ever, confessing even half of our sins, if we do not also confess, as we do, that we ourselves are poor, miserable sinners, corrupt to the core. For who can even know his errors? Who can get to the bottom of it? In our hearts is the venom of the ancient serpent who taught man idolatry. He taught man to make false gods of everything by teaching man to believe that God was holding out That there was some contradiction between what God is able to do and what God is willing to do. Satan taught man to trust in what can never satisfy. Mammon, money, honor, health, pleasure, power, you name it. What animates you? What gets you out of bed? What do you turn to in distress? What do you need more of to make your troubles end this is your God. These are old gods. And these gods require and demand. They demand sacrifice. They demand that you neglect prayer to the true God. They demand that you relegate hearing his word to an hour here and there, and that that can be fit into your life, if all goes well besides. They demand that it be the first, or at least the third or fourth thing that will have to be set aside If necessity requires it. But what do you need? What necessity do you have? You need to rule over your sin. It is crouching at your door. Its desire is to be your Lord. You must rule over it. You need a better Lord. The devil tempts by appealing to desires so deep in your heart that you can't root them out. How can you rule over these sins unless the tempter's head be crushed? And so we see what God was telling Cain to do. Believe what Abel believes. Don't kill your brother. Don't envy him. Don't resent him. Be reconciled to your brother. He makes no boast in his own merit. He appeals to the merit of him who promises to save. He has enough merit for you, this Savior. He seeks to save you. Rule over your sin by confessing them to God who desires to rule over your sinful heart with limitless and boundless forgiveness. Rule over your sins by forsaking the false gods of worry and mammon, greedy for your sacrifice, never providing anything promising pleasure and honor and leaving you bitter and sad. The old gods are cruel. You need mercy. And though it tarry through the night, yet these mercies are new every morning. And so wait with Jacob for the rising sun. You need to despair of any other help than the help of him with whom you wrestle. And to do what this Canaanite woman did. Cry to him for help who desires mercy and not sacrifice. Immediately before our Old Testament lesson began, the patriarch Jacob is preparing to return to the land of promise, where he dreads the malice of his brother Esau. Like Cain before him, Esau sought to kill his twin brother because his twin brother believed the promises of God, and he himself, Esau, didn't. So as Cain envied Abel, so Esau envied Jacob. Cain and Esau sensed that God was being unfair in accepting their brothers and their sacrifices, and not themselves. They saw God as arbitrary and unjust. So is everyone who pits God's willingness and power against each other. So is everyone who does not repent of his sin. Even personal sins that seem to hurt no one. Even consensual sins that seem to be very private. See how the Apostle warns those who fornicate. He says that to to enter into private, secret, consensual sin with no discernible victim, with someone else, is to take advantage of and defraud your brother, or as the case may be, to defraud your sister. It is to use another in a cruel and demonic way. In the name of love and self-sacrifice, to exploit from that person what your flesh desires for your own sense of security and validation. It is demonic. It is to suppose that because God cannot satisfy you unless you disobey him, so also the one with whom you sin cannot trust God either. If anything should prevent God's children from sexual immorality, it is this that by using another for your own emotional or physical comfort, you are encouraging the one you claim to love not to know God as you have been taught to know him. You are confirming all of his or her doubts about the God you claim to know. What a way to defraud another, not only of dignity, but of eternal life. Or can you convince another that he or she needs God's mercy when by your sin you are forsaking the mercy you need. The God you know is the God of mercy who requires nothing of you. But his desire and will for you is for you to be holy. And he is willing and able to bring a happy end to all your frustrations and trials. You cannot long deny the one who wrestles with him in sincere and earnest prayer. Such prayer is found only in repentance. Repent. Jacob was deeply distressed. He could not face his fear alone. Before Jacob wrestled with Christ, see how he prepared himself for the struggle. And you will see how you must prepare yourself as well. When you are distressed, when you are ashamed, and when you cannot face your fear, let alone your God alone. Jacob said to God, O God of my fathers, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. And so we must confess. We are not worthy of the mercies and the truth that we find in Christ alone, that we are honored to receive by being taught his word. We are not worthy. And it is precisely in this, confessing our unworthiness we find the strength and courage to wrestle with him who alone is able to bless us. If we rely on our own worthiness, we will let go if we do not first run away. But if we find God's greater power not in fighting against us, but in his desire to show kindness and compassion to unworthy sinners, if this is where we find God's greatest power, then we see that even though we wrestle, and even though we are wounded, and even though the pain remains with us our whole lives long as we limp, as it were, all the way to the grave, yet he lets us win. He teaches us not to hold on to our merit, but to his. And he reveals where we grab onto it, precisely there where he requires that we humble ourselves. Jesus overcame temptation as our substitute. He overcame sin, death, and hell as our substitute. He bore all God's wrath against our sin on the cross. The sins that have angered him, Jesus has taken away. The ones hidden and forgotten by you, but come up here and there in bad dreams and memories of your youth. The sins we know about and that distress us. The sins we have not discovered. These sins that have... Caused our earthly woes, the sins of others by which we feel that we suffer unjustly and we can't make sense of it. Jesus took it all away. He who appears to be our enemy teaches us that only in humble repentance will we discover his friendship. As our substitute, he defended us against the devil with the word of God. He is our example, too, and so are all of his children. She who was dismissed and insulted as a dog was being tested. And whatever affliction you have, you are being tested to. She caught Jesus in his words. Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So catch Jesus in his words. He is the savior of sinners. He is the giver of eternal life to those who have ruined their lives. He is the all-availing victim on the cross to save those who have been victimized by foes and tyrants. He loves you. So in every request, acknowledge what you are, appeal to mercy, and he will give you what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen.